brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Ten months after the horrifying shooting at Columbine High School, Littleton, Colorado would be struck with yet another set of senseless killings. 15-year-old Nick Kunzelman and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Stephanie Hart Grizel, were both shot and killed at a Subway restaurant half a mile from the school. For an already battered community, it was yet another horrifying blow. Nick, who worked at the restaurant, was closing alone that night and Stephanie snuck out of her house to spend time with him and likely give him a ride home. Unfortunately, they would never make it out of the store as sometime between 10 p.m. and 12.55 a.m., a gunman entered the building and fired several shots, leaving the teens on the floor behind the counter. It's been nearly 20 years since the terrible double homicide took place, and investigators have never been able to nail down a suspect to the shooting. Despite being in possession of more than 150 pieces of evidence, police remain unsure of the killer's motive or identity. One thing, however, remains clear to those in the community. Someone knows the truth, and after all these years, it's time to find out. This is Trace Evidence, Episode 99, The Murders of Nick Kunzelman and Stephanie Hart Grizel. Welcome to Trace Evidence. I'm your host, Stephen Pacheco. Today we examine a horrible double homicide often overlooked in the aftermath of the tragedy at Columbine. Before getting into the case, just a few notes about the show. Trace Evidence is a weekly true crime podcast focusing on a different unsolved case each week. If you have questions, comments, or case suggestions, email me at traceevidencepod at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at TraceEvPod, on Instagram at TraceEvidencePodcast, or join the Facebook discussion group simply by searching for Trace Evidence. You can visit the website at trace-evidence.com for full episodes, social media links, merchandise, and more. As a final note, Trace Evidence is a complete one-man operation, so if you'd like to help support the podcast, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash traceevidence, where you can gain rewards such as stickers, pins, and other surprises. If Patreon isn't your thing, but you still want to pitch in, there is a PayPal donation button on the website. Two teenagers gunned down at a Subway restaurant just 10 months after the horrible shootings at Columbine High School. 
a case which remains unsolved nearly 20 years later. This is episode 99, The Murders of Nick Kunzelman and Stephanie Hart Grizel. There are places in the world where the simple mention of a city's name brings in a flood of visual imagery, and oftentimes, not for the best of reasons. A town or city can exist for hundreds of years with little about it being remarkable until something horrifying happens, and then, for the foreseeable future, the name of that location is tied to the terrible events or crimes that took place there. So when I mention the city of Littleton, Colorado, I imagine most people are going to experience the flood of memories, emotions, and terror that are associated with what has grown to become known as the Columbine High School Massacre. Over the past 20 years, the horrible tragedy at Columbine has been examined, re-examined, and reported on extensively. Twelve students and one teacher lost their lives that day, not to mention those who survived with serious injuries that they live with to this day and the two shooters have become infamous for their cruelty and calculated actions. While everyone knows their names, I elect not to give any more attention to them, nor credit them with the fame they so desired, and so to me, they are known simply as the shooters. There is both little about Columbine which hasn't been deeply researched and investigated, though there is still an utter lack of understanding or reason that has ever been found to explain how such a terrible thing could happen, Perhaps madness defies logic. Obviously, in the 20 years since, we've seen some similar crimes occur, and each time there is this reaction in the media to harken back to Columbine, to speak of Littleton, and to dredge up that horror. However, Littleton is not what many would imagine, or perhaps it's simply not what you were told that it is. In the aftermath of April 20th, 1999, Littleton was depicted as this sleepy little town that gave birth to two monsters who rained down terror and death in what was at the time the worst school shooting in American history. However, Littleton was not the source nor the cause. As any other city in the world, horrible things will happen, but it's a stretch to hold the location itself responsible. Littleton is much like many cities you've visited, lived in, or passed through. It's not immune to crime, to murder, to horrifying events that shock the nation. Terrible things happen every day. You've got a plethora of true crime podcasts to quantify that number for you. When I think of Littleton, while the shooting at Columbine definitely arises in my mind, there's another crime that I'm often more drawn towards and haunted by, and for some reason this particular crime doesn't get the attention that could possibly lend some assistance. Perhaps it's just not as headline-grabbing. Maybe it just hasn't been given the thorough examination it requires. Yes, the shootings at the school were terrible, but we know who committed those crimes, and they're gone. Despite what some might argue, for the most part, the history of what led to that tragedy has been very well documented, and little is left to truly search for, perhaps beyond the psychological implications and that much-debated appearance or lack thereof of warning signs, behavioral patterns, the parents' role and knowledge, and anything else which might lend insight into stopping the next tragedy. However, there is a case that remains open and unsolved that not many people talk about, and while information is sparse, despite the terrible nature of the crime, this one could still be solved. 
Nicholas Ray Kunzelman first met Stephanie Lynn Hart Grizel in middle school, and their connection was undeniable. According to the Denver Channel, they quickly became friends, and as that friendship evolved, it was clear to those around them that the two close friends felt much more for one another than just friendship. Over the course of several years, Nick and Stephanie grew closer, and a relationship would eventually blossom. It was young love, the kind that mesmerizes teenagers and confounds parents. In an interview with CBS4 Denver, Nick's stepmother, Teresa Kunzelman, explained their relationship by saying, quote, It was very strange for two teenagers to be in love like that, but it was so precious. End quote. There are many articles which acknowledge that, for those around Nick and Stephanie, it was clear their love was not merely a high school infatuation, but something far beyond that. For Nick, 15, and Stephanie then 16, she was his world, and Stephanie felt very much the same about him. They shared a lot in common, a love of the arts and sports, an interest in openness and acceptance. In an article which appeared in the Los Angeles Times, several individuals defined Nick and Stephanie as callbacks to the 1960s mentality of peace and love. They were described by so many as kind and caring teenagers who had friends across all different forms and fashions of cliques and groups that can often divide rather than bringing people together. Yet for these two, it was all about doing what was right and what was best. A lot of different attributes have been assigned to the two. However, there are some which appear time and again. Nick is often referred to as a champion junior disc golfer and a lover of music who played guitar with everything that he had. He was close with his family and always concerned about their happiness and doing whatever he could to assist them with what they sought. Stephanie has been labeled as a lover of school, a young woman who thoroughly enjoyed being in the world of education, who had a predilection towards poetry and music, two areas which she could connect and share with Nick. An article from Nine News describes the two as, quote, Drawn together by arts and music, they were inseparable. End quote. In April of 1999, both Nick and Stephanie were students at Columbine High School during the horrible tragedy. Freshmen at the time, neither had been injured, at least physically, though it's quite clear that the psychological and emotional damage caused by the shooting had left the entire community fractured and seeking answers to questions that no one possessed. Stephanie's mother, Kelly, would later tell the Denver Channel, quote, Although they had just gone through the tragedy at the high school, they were coming through it so good, and they were so happy. We just really felt like that might be the last hard thing that we went through. End quote. Indeed, it seemed, among many other things, the tightness of the bond between Nick and Stephanie had aided them in beginning to heal from the horrors they had experienced. Unfortunately, less than a year after that shooting, while the community was still reeling and trying to recover, both would lose their lives in a seemingly senseless act of violence that would once more tear open those painful wounds and shatter more families. Nick had picked up a part-time job to work after school at the local Subway sandwich shop. The shop, located at 6768 West Coal Mine Avenue, less than a half a mile south of the school, certainly was placed easily enough to allow Nick to walk over after classes and get down to business. It didn't take long for management to acknowledge Nick's hard work and dependability, with former co-worker J.J. Hodak 
telling the New York Times that Nick was often entrusted with closing down the shop on his own. He had earned the responsibility and proven himself to be the type to be trusted. Beyond that, Hodak would say, quote, He was a really nice kid. He made the time to talk to you, to see how you were doing. He was a really friendly type. End quote. Stephanie and Nick were together as often as they could be. Outside of Nick, Stephanie had a world full of love and laughter. Her cousin, Courtney Scott, told the New York Times that the 16-year-old loved school and was extremely social, stating, quote, She had a lot of friends. She loved sports, like swimming. She was just a real good person. End quote. Every interview I've read discussing Nick or Stephanie alike is filled with the most glowing terms, making their last moments all the more horrifying and terrible. Nick's job at Subway would often involve, as most high school jobs do, seeing fellow students coming in to grab something to eat. It wasn't uncommon for friends to visit just to say hey or to hang out inside to avoid the cold for a little bit. One frequent visitor, as you might expect, was Stephanie. Several people, both customers and employees alike, told reporters that Stephanie would often visit Nick at work and during those nights where he was closing up alone, Stephanie was almost always there to walk him out as he locked the doors behind them and then she'd give him a ride home. Sadly, on February 13th, 2000, the day before Valentine's Day, Stephanie would head off to Subway without her mother's knowledge to once again spend time with Nick as he closed up. On this particular night, however, the couple would find themselves the victims of a cold-blooded killer. Earlier that night, Stephanie's mother had bid her goodnight, telling her she loved her. For all intents and purposes, Kelly believed that her daughter was getting ready for bed. She had no idea that Stephanie had planned to sneak out of the house later on, driving over to Subway to see Nick. In fact, she didn't realize the horrible truth until the next morning when she spotted her daughter's car in the subway parking lot during a news broadcast where a reporter was telling the terrible story about two teenagers who had been killed inside the shop. Kelly would later explain, quote, I still didn't know why her car would be there, but had no idea that it could be her. I was very worried, end quote. The sheer fact of the matter is, no one knows exactly what happened that night. According to several news articles, multiple people reported having been in the subway that Sunday. Actually, Nathan Grill, 15, both a classmate of and co-worker with Nick, told reporters that he had been in the store that evening with a group of friends. According to Grill, he and some friends left the subway at approximately 10 p.m., and according to him, all was well and there was no indications of any problems coming around the corner. However, just three hours later, at approximately 1 a.m., another worker at the shop just happened to be driving by. The store stuck out to her as she approached because she noticed the lights were still on while the store should have been closed down hours ago. The employee who spotted the store attended Columbine High School and worked with Nick at that subway. Curious about the lights being on, she slowly pulled into the parking lot to check in and see if something was wrong. Almost immediately upon entering the store, she discovered the horrifying reason the lights were still on. Both Nick and Stephanie had been shot to death by an unknown assailant and were left lying behind the counter. It was at this time that she took to notifying the police, and while she hadn't been working that evening, she did remember one key detail about that night. 
As she had pulled into the parking lot, she observed a white male with blonde hair thought to be in his late teens or early 20s leaving the area of the shop. The man, dressed in a red jacket and flared pants, has never been identified, and for authorities, he would become the main person of interest they sought to question. Initially, investigators approached the double murder from an angle that it may have been a robbery gone wrong, though for the most part, few agreed with that sentiment. While Jefferson County Sheriff's Office spokesman Steve Davis told reporters that he was unsure about the money being found in the cash register, other officers in various interviews stated their belief that robbery had not been the motive behind the killings. Even if robbery had been the motive, the killer certainly wasn't going to have the opportunity to get much out of the store itself. J.J. Hodak later told the New York Times that it was store policy to empty the registers of large bills every hour, depositing those bills into lockboxes that store-level employees did not have access to. Hodak would later explain, quote, The only thing he possibly got was change or maybe $50, end quote. Investigation of the scene was challenging, certainly so on a forensics level. According to reports and statements that have been issued over the years, crime scene teams found a vast quantity of fingerprints inside the shop, which is to be expected at a public sandwich shop. On top of the fingerprints, DNA was also recovered, although in what manner, I've never been able to ascertain. Elias Alberti, a cold case investigator for Jefferson County, would tell Nine News in May of 2017 that DNA, fingerprints, and other evidence had been sent out to multiple labs for examination, even transmitting that data to other countries in hopes of tracking down the suspect. However, he specified that all of that evidence has failed to deliver the identity of the killer or killers. In the initial response to reporters' questions, several details were given regarding the crime itself. Firstly, Investigators made it clear that while the murders were another horrible crime to strike the area, they had little or no evidence to suggest a connection between the shootings of Nick and Stephanie to the Columbine Massacre. Beyond that, it was acknowledged that a surveillance camera was present in the store, though whether or not that tape revealed any important clues was withheld at the time. Years later, cold case investigators would reveal that while the surveillance camera had recorded that night, the tape did not give anything helpful to investigators in terms of identifying the suspect. According to the Chicago Tribune, Jefferson County District Attorney Dave Thomas told reporters that investigators were looking into every possible motive for the double murder. Unfortunately, a motive for the killings has never been confirmed. To this day, there are questions in the community about what possible reason there could have been for such an act of violence. Some have wondered, off and on, could this have just been a random crime committed by someone looking to add to the pain and chaos of this difficult time in Littleton? Was robbery a motive and things just went wrong very quickly? Others have questioned whether or not this could have been targeted. Could the killer have specifically wanted to kill either Nick or Stephanie and in the moment elected to kill both? These are all difficult questions that have never been met with sufficient answers. One curious angle of the killings may have been in an alleged connection to drug sales. In a lawsuit filed against the former owner of that particular location, lawyers representing Stephanie's mother alleged that at the time, 
It was known that there were individuals either employed at or who frequented the subway shop involved in the sale of marijuana. In fact, the lawsuit argues that the owner of that store knew about these sales and chose to turn a blind eye, with it being stated rather bluntly that drugs were being sold out the back door of the restaurant and most people knew about it. This possibility led many to wonder whether or not the murders could have been connected to someone who had either come to the restaurant looking to purchase drugs or perhaps someone who used to commit those kinds of acts at that location in general. In part, the lawsuit also put forth the possibility that Nick may have been using marijuana around that time and some have argued that he could have let the killer into the restaurant via the back door. Whether or not any of that's true has never been proven or verified. In a 2008 Denver Post article, it was said that the investigation into the murders revealed the existence of a marijuana and cocaine selling operation being conducted in the area around the store. This potentially led investigators to consider the possibility of how the murders could have been drug-related, though that would still raise questions about exactly how Stephanie and Nick were tied into that. For most, the assumption exists that this may have been an instance of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, with the perpetrator seeking to punish someone in connection to the drug ring and finding only Nick and Stephanie in the store that night. According to an article by Kirk Mitchell in the Denver Post, in the aftermath of the crimes, a major drug ring investigation resulted in the arrests of 35 individuals on drug charges after a wiretapping operation recorded more than 3,000 phone calls. Of course, while authorities were able to make drug arrests, they were not successful in connecting any of those arrests to the murders themselves. It was later revealed that nothing had been taken from the restaurant, seemingly eliminating the robbery motive, though this did make police lean more towards the possibility of this having been a drug-related crime. However, after interviews conducted in more than 50 drug arrests, no connections were ever established. Just days after the killings, the corporate arm of Subway issued a public statement and offered up to a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the perpetrator. Subway spokesman Michelle Klotzer told reporters, quote, We want to help the sheriff's office find out who committed this awful crime. Somebody must have seen something, heard something, or been there. Maybe this will prompt them to come forward. End quote. Word was traveling fast, and law enforcement began receiving a deluge of calls on their tip line. Within days of the crime, police had received more than 75 tips and conducted over 150 interviews. The case file on the double homicide grew rapidly, with multiple boxes being filled with information and more than 40 binders overflowing with reports and a total of 150 pieces of evidence though none of this seemed to lead investigators any closer to really clamping down on who could have committed the crime. Two composite sketches were issued to the public within the first days of the investigation. Each of these composites depicts the same individual, described as being a white male, 16 to 20 years old, standing approximately 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighing between 150 and 170 pounds. He was further described as being clean-shaven, with blonde hair, and was seen wearing blue jeans, tennis shoes, a black baseball-style hat turned backwards, and a coat with either a red lining or a red shirt underneath. 
The composite sketches have been in circulation since the time of the murders, though again, the suspect's identity remains unknown. Over the years, while investigators have, at times, believed they were close to solving the case, they've also hit a great many dead ends. Perhaps one of the most bizarre aspects of the investigation has been the confessions. Several people, tracking all the way back to 2000 when the double murder took place, have come forward to authorities and claimed responsibility. However, in every one of those cases, the individuals claiming to have committed the crimes have not been able to answer basic questions related to the details of the investigation that were withheld by law enforcement for identification purposes. False confessions are always a weird aspect of an investigation, but especially this case. It's a difficult situation, impossible to accept, and for the community, it's absolutely mind-blowing that anyone would claim responsibility for something so heinous if they had no role in it. In an interesting turn of events, Nathan Grill, whom I quoted from earlier and who had worked with Nick at the store, was questioned by authorities multiple times regarding the possible drug trade and activities taking place at that subway. In an interview with Salon.com, Nathan claimed that while drug activities occurred at the store from time to time, he didn't believe they played a role in the crime, and he didn't believe Nick had any connection to drugs. Nathan would go on to claim that when he left the store the night of the murders, he witnessed one customer left in the store at approximately 9.55 p.m., and when he left, Stephanie had yet to arrive. For some, they believe Grill to be a person of interest, though I haven't been able to verify that through any source I've utilized. Sadly, as you might have come to expect these days, there are several conspiracy theories about this case in which individuals try to tie it to Columbine, so there's a lot to sort through. Sadly, the tragedy of this case has also been represented in the loss of another. Brandy Joe Malonson, who had attended Columbine High and was present during the April 20th, 1999 shooting. In the aftermath, her family had urged that she seek out counseling and confront the pain and trauma she was feeling, but Brandy Joe didn't want to deal with it. Less than a year later, her good friends Nick and Stephanie were murdered in Subway, another devastating blow to the young woman. A sophomore in high school and already so close to so much tragedy, it's heartbreaking. Seven months later, she checked her voicemail to discover a goodbye message from a close friend who then took his own life. A few years later, Brandy Jo found herself getting into trouble. There was an arrest for theft two months before graduating from high school. It seemed as though Brandy was going to put things back on track, though. She became a certified nursing assistant and began working with the elderly. Unfortunately, it seemed, the tragedy of her past continued to haunt her and soon Brandy Joe's family became aware that she had developed a drug problem. A person who has been defined as a friend, though I find that the wrong term to use, apparently introduced Brandy Joe to meth, and she fell deep into that addiction. Her problems continued to snowball with her declaring bankruptcy in 2005, and then facing charges for drug possession and identity theft in late 2006. On December 26th of that same year, Brandy left home to visit a friend and never returned. Brandy's family received a call from an unidentified man who claimed that she had been murdered and thrown in the river. Investigators speaking to friends and acquaintances received a wide array of different stories. In one account, Brandy had accidentally overdosed and she was disposed of afterwards. In another, 
she had been killed and dumped in a lake. One individual claimed that Brandy had been murdered and her body hidden in the mountains, according to the Salt Lake Tribune. Brandy has never been seen again, and according to her Charlie Project page, authorities are seeking out a woman named Lisa Gibson, who they believe possesses information about Brandy's fate and potential whereabouts. Gibson was 42 years old when Brandy went missing, and at the time was known for frequenting bars on South Broadway. Brandy Joe herself has been described as being a Caucasian female with light brown hair and blue eyes, standing five feet tall and weighing approximately 115 pounds. She has several tattoos, including a cross on her left calf, a butterfly on her back, and Chinese characters on her left hip, left ankle, and left breast. She remains missing today. Sadly, the links between the murders of Nick and Stephanie, the disappearance of Brandy Joe, and several other crimes have continued to frustrate and confound investigators and family alike. Sergeant Wayne Holverson, working out of the Sheriff's Office Homicide Unit, spoke to the Denver Channel about the difficulty of the investigation and the lack of information they'd been able to gather. Sergeant Holverson stated, quote, We've spoken to friends, family, and customers from that day, and just no one knows anything or has come forward yet to say anything. I think that's the frustrating thing, is that you can see in front of you the amount of work that's been done on it, and yet it seems like you keep coming back to a dead end. End quote. Nearly 20 years have passed since that night, and the answers remain as shrouded and mysterious as they were then, except now, investigators must contend with flawed memories, forgotten details, and all that comes along with the passage of time. For the families, though, they will never forget, and while closure may not be an option, justice remains longed for and possible. The families were met with a wealth of support from the community, and especially from Nick and Stephanie's friends. In the aftermath of the murders, while the family struggled to confront the tragedy that had befallen them, the decision was made to keep Nick and Stephanie together in death as they had longed to be in life. The two were buried side by side on the hills of Mount Lindo Cemetery. A memorial bench was placed at the site bearing the inscription, Together in Peace Forever. Each year on Valentine's Day, Friends and family gather to remember the good times, to speak of the loving memories they hold of Nick and Stephanie, and, sadly, to discuss the lack of developments in the case. One special moment for those involved is when they toss frisbees off the hillside where the two were laid to rest. Such a close community, such a tight-knit group that suffered so many tragedies together, the question remains, how has no one yet come forward to provide the information necessary for an arrest? For Stephanie's mother, Kelly, it's a frustrating and painful experience. In a 2017 interview, she stated, quote, It's been 17 years. We haven't lost hope. We still feel like the case will be solved if someone could come forward. It would be wonderful after so many years. In the beginning, you don't think you could possibly walk through another day, but you just go on for the hope that you're fighting for her to get justice and it would just mean the world if we could, after all these years, get some justice." End quote. In such a disturbing and open case, there are several different theories which address what may have happened and who may have been responsible. The first theory argues that the crime itself was random, that someone entered that subway with some motive, which has never been ascertained, 
and for reasons passing understanding, elected to murder Nick and Stephanie. The second theory tries to connect the ongoing drug problem to the murders. If indeed that subway was a major hub or hangout for those dealing or buying drugs, as has been presented by several individuals, many believe there's a possibility that Nick and Stephanie may have been killed in the crossfire of a battle between drug dealers. The third and final theory, as some have suggested, alleges that either Nick, Stephanie, or both were specifically targeted for this crime, and that for reasons unknown, perhaps jealousy, perhaps something else, the killer may have gone to Subway that night with the specific intent to kill one or both of them. While little about this case is clear, for lack of a better description, there is much which remains to be revealed. Time and again, investigators have spoken about the information they have and their inability to share it publicly, not wanting to compromise their investigation. This is true in all unsolved cases, but in this instance, there is an eager desire to see what is known and to try and connect the dots. Even the families are not aware of much of the information in the possession of investigators, but as far as we know, none of it has as of yet been able to pin down any particular suspect. The argument, though, remains the same. Someone knows who pulled the trigger on Nick and Stephanie that cold February night. Someone out there possesses knowledge about this crime and has the ability to lend a hand to investigators in finally delivering justice for the victims and their families. Nearly 20 years have passed, far too long for the families to wonder what the truth is. They have had to live with the ghosts of possibility, with the wonder of what their loved ones could have become, what they'd have done with their lives. 20 years is a long time, long enough ago that I was 16 when these murders happened the same age as Stephanie. How much have I done, how much have you done, in the past 20 years? In one foul swoop, a killer stole all of those possibilities for these two teenagers who wanted nothing more than to love and live life to the fullest. Stephanie was an only child, while Nick had two siblings. Nick's father passed away, never knowing the truth of who was responsible for taking his son, while friends and family to this day hope with eager anticipation for someone to provide the information investigators so desperately need to finally make an arrest and deliver justice. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. How many of you have pets? I've always been a dog person myself, but I love animals of all kinds. That's why, when it comes to taking care of my dog, I trust Solid Gold. Solid Gold was the first holistic pet food company in America, started in 1974 by Sissy McGill. Sissy was a trailblazer and a pioneer who disrupted a male-dominated industry and created a natural pet food before it was cool. Solid Gold's nutritional platform is inspired by their beliefs that high-quality food is the best way to impact our pet's mind, body, and spirit. 
Solid gold foods cleanse the digestive system with whole superfoods, balance it with living probiotics, and fuel your pet with omega-3 and 6 fatty acids, supporting gut health and nourishing your pet inside and out. Right now, Solid Gold is offering my listeners 30% off your first order by visiting solidgoldpet.com slash trace. That's solidgoldpet.com slash trace for 30% off your first order. Remember, solidgoldpet.com slash trace to save 30% today. Two teenagers gunned down in the prime of their lives in the shadow of a national tragedy. In a case that has horrified and intrigued authors, journalists, documentary filmmakers, and others, the senseless murder of two teens has been, in many instances, relegated to short articles with little meat on the bone. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, much maligned in the aftermath of the Columbine shootings, found themselves once more at the heart of a terrible crime for which there were no easy answers. However, in this instance, there were many different angles, many different views, and a whole host of people trying to figure out what kind of person could commit such an atrocity and why it happened in the first place. No one goes to work expecting it to be their last day on Earth, and that's certainly true for two teenagers who wanted nothing more than to be together. Before getting into the theories directly, I did want to address something I'm sure I'll hear about in emails after the release of this episode. I came across quite a bit of conspiracy theories revolving around this case, and while that information can be fascinating, and I in no way use the term conspiracy theory as an insult, I operate off information that I can verify. There's a lot out there trying to tie this crime to Columbine itself, suggesting the possibility that the murders were somehow connected. Investigators didn't see that, though saying that doesn't do much to silence anyone who believes the theories because, to many, and certainly not without merit, they don't have very high standards for the investigating prowess of Jefferson County. I fully understand that. However, in most instances, theories, and angles I read about these conspiracy theories, they failed to provide me with any sources to verify what was being claimed. I'd love to track things down but you have to give me somewhere to go. I saw a lot of alleged quotes from people related to the case, but no point of origin for those quotes. I searched for the quotes, I searched for the information that was being presented, and I simply couldn't find anything to verify it. I'm not opposed to asking questions and digging deeper. I'm not a guy who out of hand dismisses all conspiracy theories as ridiculous, because frankly, in some cases, they turn out to be true. Maybe that could be the case here, and maybe someday that'll be proven. But as it stands now, I just couldn't find anything to back up a lot of it. So I'd just like to request, before you hit send on that angry email, at least include a few links to sources for me to look at. So what do we have in this case? Two teenagers at a Subway restaurant at closing time. Reportedly, nobody else around to see or hear what happens. While multiple witnesses would later confirm seeing an individual in the area matching the composite sketch, Nobody, as far as I can tell, has ever come forward and claimed to have been a direct witness to anything that happened inside the restaurant that night. So, in reality, we're left with a large amount of questions here and very few details to fill in the blanks. Despite criticism about their investigation standards, Jefferson County has been exceedingly tight-lipped about this case 
and kept known materials behind locked doors, never revealing them to the public. Obviously, based on their statements about false confessions, they're in possession of quite a few details that are known only to them and the person or persons responsible for this horrible crime. It's difficult to examine the evidence because much of it's never been revealed. I read in multiple places that over 150 pieces of evidence are in the possession of investigators. In certain interviews, it's been revealed that some of that evidence is fingerprints and some of it's DNA. It sounds as though investigators have enough to identify someone if only they had someone to compare it to. We know that the fingerprints and DNA have been run through several law enforcement systems and there's never been a match, which would suggest that the suspect had not been arrested prior to the murders or since the murders, which is a really strange thing to imagine in someone who has no problem killing two teenagers. Because of the utter lack of full information regarding the evidence itself, we can really only work towards motive and possibilities revolving around why this crime would have happened in the first place. So, to begin with, we'll work with theory number one, that the horrifying tragedy of these murders was the result of a completely random act of violence. It's difficult to accept. We like to have reasons why things happened, especially terrible things like murder. But sometimes, there is no particular reason. There's no particular motive. As we are all well aware, there are people out there with a proclivity towards violence who go out looking not for a reason to kill, but just for someone to kill. For many, they consider this a possibility, and that the killer or killers responsible for this crime may have committed the murder simply because they wanted to. As I discussed in last week's episode about the Belo shooting, there isn't always an ability to figure out the motive. In that case, it seemed pretty clear that while robbery played a part, murder was the ultimate goal. Here, we have a similar situation, but in this case, robbery appears to have played no role. It's been revealed in the years since that nothing was taken from the subway. No money was handed over, no safe busted into. Nothing seems to have been done at all outside of the murders themselves, which seems to suggest that murder was the goal. The question becomes whether it was the murders of Nick and Stephanie that was the goal, or if this was just about killing whoever happened to be there. It's been said in many crime articles, movies, and podcasts that one of the more easy ways to avoid detection when it comes to murder is to commit the crime at random, although that tends to apply more to the past than the present where we have a lot better techniques for discovering a killer. A lack of personal connection to the victim is certainly going to throw investigators off, at least at the beginning of the investigation. Maybe that could be the situation here, that this person was in possession of a gun, saw an opportunity in a subway where there was just two people inside, and off he went to commit the crime. Maybe it's the fact that this happened in Littleton, which makes it seem like there has to be more to the story. Well, the crime itself could have been random, but also motivated by the atmosphere at the time. Littleton was struggling. Ten months had passed since the shooting at Columbine High, and while some families were deep in their grief, others were trying to press on and not allow that darkness to overwhelm them. Reporters had descended on the area and shoved cameras in everyone's face, so much so that a bitter dispute would break out between the school, the families, the investigators, and the media. Lawsuits were filed, sealed depositions took place, some documents still remain sealed and are pending release after the assigned amount of time passes, and it hasn't passed yet. It isn't difficult to imagine that, while those who wish to spread hope and good feelings may have come to town looking to help, 
there would certainly be those with darker intentions who wanted to further the pain. Many have wondered if this crime, perhaps random in nature, could have been conducted if for no reason other than to extend the loss and the damage committed to that town. It's hard to argue against, especially when you've got so little to work with. But it's strange, isn't it, that this would be to extend that horror, murdering two teenagers completely at random. There were other restaurants, other stores, other places where a killer could have easily found one or two people to kill if this was merely about murder. So why this particular place? That's a question we'll just have to address in a subsequent theory. All we really know in regards to this first theory is that while the idea of this being totally random can't be completely dismissed, it exists mostly due to the absence of true answers. I should note, investigators have never really been too outspoken about this being random, which I think, if nothing else, lends credence to the possibility that in the files they possess, they may have something to suggest a lot more was going on here. A lot of people have pointed towards this crime being connected to drugs, and so we'll proceed to theory number two and take a closer look at that. Obviously, there was a drug issue going on in the area at the time. More than 50 drug cases came following investigations into the drug problems revolving around Subway and other businesses in the area. It seems quite clear that, at a minimum, people in the area knew this was a place you could go to to either get or sell drugs. I read several accounts from people who lived in the area at the time who said it was pretty widely known and that this particular subway had kind of a backdoor policy. The specifics seem a little confusing, but it basically sounded like some employees at that subway were involved. It isn't hard to imagine, really. I certainly worked lower-tier retail jobs in high school and witnessed my fair share of dealers who would either work there or just use the location as a meetup point to sell drugs. I don't see why it would be any different here. Of course, for the most part, it didn't sound like we were talking about things like heroin, although I do know a cocaine drug ring was mentioned as operating in the area near the subway. When you start bringing in higher tier drugs like that, usually you bring in problems. While the drug trade has many facets to it, it would be hardly the first time we've seen deaths come as the result of a grudge between different dealers and groups. For many, they can't help but wonder, what if the murders of Nick and Stephanie weren't targeting them, but maybe the location itself? Not only would the murders rain down a lot of police attention, but also media scrutiny. And if you want to shut down a competitor, there's little more effective tactic than committing horrible crimes and forcing your competition to go underground. For some, they believe that's what happened here, and that Nick and Stephanie may have found themselves caught in the crossfire of a drug war they didn't even know was going on. I know in the lawsuit filed by Stephanie's mother, there was mention that maybe Nick was partaking in marijuana, while co-worker Nathan Grill said he didn't believe that. The truth of the matter is, we don't know. But a 15-year-old with an impeccable record who works part-time at a subway likely isn't involved in the heavy lifting associated with a major drug ring. Did he smoke marijuana? I don't know. But I had certainly tried it a few times by the time I was 15, and I don't think that speaks negatively about him or me. Frankly, marijuana is legal in Colorado these days, so perhaps the point is moot, but it's one which has to be examined. I've never seen any evidence to link Nick to selling drugs, but there were a few articles which implied the possibility that he may have had knowledge of what was going on, more so on the periphery. In at least two articles, I read theories that the killer may have gained access to the store via the back door, and that this may have been a common activity, 
either people looking to buy or sell coming by the back door. I've often found myself wondering if maybe the drug links are true, whether or not drugs may have been stored at the subway with it being used as a kind of pickup and drop off point. I've seen that kind of behavior before. Someone might leave money in a certain place, and then another person takes that money and leaves behind the product, and then later another person arrives to collect that product. Maybe this could have been part of what was going on at the back door of Subway, and maybe it was a common transaction, so much so that nobody really paid attention to it. I don't know that that's the case by any stretch of the imagination, but it wouldn't be the first time something like that was going on. The problem becomes when too many people know about that transaction. I've read time and again that nothing was taken from the subway, but would it have been noticed if something was taken that wasn't supposed to be there in the first place? I think we're all aware that when we're talking about people who are deep in the drug scene, it isn't difficult to imagine they're willing to kill for what they want. I've often thought about the possibility that someone could have walked into the store that night not to make a purchase, but to steal drugs. Drugs that they knew were there. Maybe they expected someone different to be working. Maybe they didn't care. Maybe they got scared by Nick or Stephanie. Maybe it was just a total disaster from start to finish. If the murders were in fact connected to the drug trade, then the possibilities are endless. Someone could have gone there to do something they often do and felt like Nick or Stephanie saw more than they wanted them to. Someone could have gone there with the full intention of taking what they knew was there and shooting anyone who got in their way or who they thought might be able to identify them. What I suppose makes it really bizarre is the idea that someone connected to the drug trade who wouldn't think twice about committing such a terrible act hasn't been picked up and put in the system yet leading to a match. You'd imagine this person wouldn't be able to skirt law enforcement forever, and yet here we have a suspect who has never been matched through any law enforcement system. How could that be? Well, maybe the crime didn't have anything to do with drugs, or maybe it was perpetrated by someone who was involved at the time, but young enough that they eventually got out of the business, or something else happened to them before they could be arrested and have their fingerprints on file. And that leads us to the third and final theory, that this crime may have been committed by someone specifically targeting Nick, Stephanie, or both of them. Ten months had passed since the shootings at Columbine, but the community was still broken. So many people suffered so much psychological trauma on top of those who were suffering from the physical horrors they had to endure. It isn't difficult to imagine people being on edge, people being pushed too far, people just snapping and lashing out. While in all accounts I've read, no one had a negative thing to say about either Stephanie or Nick, we all know there's always that small group of people who hate just to hate, or who hate those who they see as thriving or being happy in a situation they personally find themselves drowning in. I think it's important to note at this time that there are composite sketches made based on an individual who was seen in the area at the time. We don't know if this person was responsible for the crime, though this person never has come forward to speak to authorities, so take from that what you will. However, the person being described in those composites is between the ages of 16 and 20. That means someone who could have been in school with Nick and Stephanie at the time of the murders, all the way up to someone who may have graduated the year they were freshmen, or maybe the year before that. If this was someone who lived in the area, there's a good chance this person attended school at Columbine. I mean, why else would you be hanging around a subway less than half a mile from campus? I mean, sure, there could be reasons, but if we're talking about another teen, 
then I'd say those reasons are somewhat limited. Nick and Stephanie were smart, driven, focused teens who were popular and had a relationship that some might admire while others might be jealous of. I've read more than one account of people theorizing that perhaps this could have been a case involving jealousy. It was love between two sophomores in high school, and the chances that someone could have been jealous of their relationship isn't easily dismissed. Unfortunately, people kill for stupid reasons most of the time, and this could absolutely be one of those instances. Just imagine the combination of everything going on. Person wants someone they can't have, is struggling with the psychological implications of what they have endured at school, in the community, or both, and wants to strike back at somebody. A horrible synopsis, I know, but not one which is beyond the realm of possibility. Then you've got these idiots who are fans of the Columbine shooters. You know, the ones who go and get tattoos of them and post stories on Tumblr about how much they love them. These are basically younger versions of the people who write love letters to serial killers or try to marry them after they've been found guilty. Not exactly the type of people you'd expect a logical set of behaviors from. You also have to remember how much information and confusion there was at the time. I mean, we had stories of the trench coat mafia. We had people saying it was because the shooters had been bullied. You had people standing up to defend the shooters. It was a powder keg of emotions and violence, and it isn't hard to imagine that there could have been a few more nuts amongst the community. So, is it so difficult to imagine in any American city in the year 2000 or even today that a teenager with a grudge could have gotten his hands on a gun and decided to do something? especially if we're talking about someone who was troubled, had psychological issues, and perhaps admired the actions of the very people we have grown to abhor. As is the case with much of this story, almost anything is possible here, and I don't think it can be directly dismissed. But I do have problems with the theory that this could have been someone who knew Nick and Stephanie, someone who attended school with them, or who had an interest that was less than pure. How many people do you know who could commit such an atrocious crime at such a young age and keep their mouth shut about it for nearly 20 years. While I think it's possible this crime could have been committed by someone who actually knew them, I think it's unlikely that person wouldn't have told someone by now. I think it's unlikely someone unhinged enough to commit such a terrible crime could then go nearly 20 years without get arrested for something at some point. But, what if that person committed this crime and then sometimes afterwards, took his or her own life. Would that person have been put into the system? Would their prints be on file? Would their DNA have been gathered and compared? Those are all questions I'd love to have the answers to, but I simply don't know. I believe there's a good chance that whoever committed this crime died sometime afterward, but I also think there's an equal chance that that person is still walking out there as a free individual, having managed to bypass law enforcement for all of these years. One thing I do know, for certain, is that someone out there knows the truth, and unless they come forward or new information or evidence is discovered, the murders of Nick Kunzelman and Stephanie Lynn Hart Grizel will remain open, unsolved, and continuing to grow cold. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you're looking for more information about the murders of Nick Kunzelman and Stephanie Grizel, There are some articles out there for your reading, though they don't dig too deep into this case. As always, I will be posting the links to all of my sources on the website within the next 12 hours, so you are free to dig through everything that I was looking at. If you have any information about the murders of Nick Kunzelman and Stephanie Grizel, please contact the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office at 303-271-0211. You can also log on to their website at jeffco.us and report information directly online. You can also contact the Colorado Bureau of Investigation at 303-239-4201. What do you believe happened? Tweet me at traceevpod, email me at traceevidencepod at gmail.com, Instagram message me at traceevidencepod, or comment in the Facebook group. This year, CrimeCon will be held in Orlando, Florida, and for the second year running, I will be present on Podcast Row representing Trace Evidence. I'm really looking forward to meeting a lot of you, so if you're planning to go to CrimeCon and you haven't yet purchased a pass, you can use promo code TRACE2020 to receive 10% off a standard badge. That's T-R-A-C-E-2020 to save 10% off a standard badge today. I'm really looking forward to seeing you there. Now it's time to thank our amazing Patreon producers. I've updated the list this month. If you think your name should be here and you don't hear it, please contact me. Patreon is notoriously bad for the way that it organized the lists of patrons, so I may have missed someone. I'll be happy to correct that. But for this month's Patreon producers, a special thank you goes to Tara Doble, Alicia Lorraine, Angie Dodd, Brittany Bivens, Brian Kemmerling, Krista Colvin, Diane Dyson, Eamon Brady, Emily Smith, Emma Vachon, Gerard Lopez Barbosa, Julia Rexon, Kate Alexander, Kelly Cohen, Laura Dickinson, Lisa Holly, Linda Halcrow, Nick Mohar Schurz, Quinn McBreen, Randy Wyland, Robbie Blue, Chandra Moreau, Samantha Ford, Tom Archer, and Wannabe Sleuth 2. You're all fantastically amazing, and I am deeply indebted to your graciousness. One last note before ending the show. I've received a lot of emails inquiring about the possible research position I'll be opening in January. Next week, I'll be releasing episode 100 and then taking a few weeks off from my holiday break. At the end of next week's episode, I'll have all the information about what the job will entail and how to apply. So if you're wanting to apply for that position and you have an interest in it, just hang in there for one more week. I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode and for listening to Trace Evidence in general. Your support and interest in these cases means a great deal to me, and I'm extremely thankful for your continued support. 
I'm going to leave you with a promo for another true crime podcast I think you might like because, let's face it, we can all use more true crime pods in our ears. So thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the 100th episode of Trace Evidence. In the last several years, criminologists have really begun to focus on the topic of women in crime. This interest has inspired Amy and I to create a podcast devoted entirely to true stories about women in crime. Twice a month, we will discuss individual stories of women who have been victims of crime or perpetrators. Sometimes these two are one and the same. We will also choose cases in which women have been falsely accused, exonerated, or women whose work in the criminal justice system has brought them notoriety. By staying true to our criminologist roots, we will tell you the full stories of these women, but we will also explain the cause of the events that happened and whether the criminal justice system got it right or not. No matter what, this podcast will focus on women in crime all of the time. So stay tuned. Women in Crime is available now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.